Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. What happens when you take a narcissist to therapy? On this episode of Navigating Narcissism, I'm diving back into our DMs to answer your questions about your therapy dilemmas. So many of you have narcissistic people in your life that you love and that you want so badly for those relationships to get better. I know you sometimes wonder, could I make this better if I just went to therapy with them? Now, we're taking on the good, the bad, and the ugly of going into the room and sitting on the couch with a narcissist. Get ready. Therapy with narcissists isn't for the faint of heart. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Our first question is from Roxana. She writes, My narcissistic sister has been wreaking havoc on our lives for years. How do I tell her she needs therapy without her exploding on me? and actually convince her to go. So Roxana's question is a universal question for people who have narcissistic people in their lives, which is, how can I get them to go to therapy? You know, there's a thing that people throw around, especially therapists who care about narcissism. It's that narcissism is the only kind of maladaptive personality style or mental health pattern where the people who have it push other people into therapy. 
And I really think that that captures sort of the paradox of narcissism. Everyone around them is going into therapy to cope with this. They aren't going into therapy, which means not only are we never going to see progress with them, but it also means therapists often don't know how to work with these clients, right? The big anguish for so many people in these situations is, could therapy maybe help a little? Could it maybe make them a little more accountable? And above all else, how do we even get them to consider going? This is a dilemma. And so Roxana kind of throws a double dilemma in here where she says, how do I tell her she needs therapy without her exploding on me? So to pick a lane, Roxana, you can tell her she needs therapy, but the version of that without her exploding, not so likely. And then the cherry on top, as it were, is and convince her to go. The conversation about asking someone narcissistic to go into therapy is more often than not going to be unsuccessful and it could actually be quite upsetting for you because the odds are they're going to gaslight you. Oh, really? Really? Who needs therapy here? Hmm. Maybe you should go in. Maybe you need to double up on the sessions you're already going to. Or in fact, maybe your therapist is just a scammer just taking your money because you seem as disturbed as you've always been. So by the time this conversation is done, you're thinking this wasn't worth it. I'm just not doing this. I'm not going to put myself in this kind of harm's way just to try to convince someone to do something that would be good for them. So here's a couple of ways. Let's break this down. Number one, does therapy work with narcissistic people? Ish. And it's a weak ish because I have worked with a lot of narcissistic clients over the years. And I have to say, learned a ton. You know, the only way you're going to learn how to box is to go 15 rounds in the ring. What I learned is that the kinds of changes that therapy can enact with a narcissistic client tend to be very small and they don't tend to be at enough of a consistent or big enough level for the people around them to notice the change. So the tricky piece with that is that people think that, well, you're telling me they're changing. They're changing in a way I can see them, but I'm not having dinner with them. I'm not going on vacation with them. I'm not having to cajole them to empty the dishwasher. None of that's not my problem with them. I have them for an hour. And in my work with them, I've got to tell you, it's the hardest clinical work I've ever done. I have been verbally abused. I've heard some really terrible things that I can't unhear. I have heard about them doing terrible things to people, saying terrible things to people. A lot of therapists would say, I would have fired that client, right? And that's what often happens with narcissistic clients. Either they're fired by their therapist or just when the therapist puts the pressure on them to really do some emotional accountability work, they get up and leave. So either way, they're dropping out of therapy. And in fact, there's data out there that shows that narcissistic people are probably somewhere between 60 to 70 percent more likely to drop out of therapy. So it's really hard to retain them in. And I have read cases of unicorns, but the reason I've read them is because they were so unique, they got published. For the rest of us who are working with these clients, we're talking about baby steps. I've had narcissistic clients I've worked with who said to me, so you're telling me that the only way this whole relationship thing is going to work out without my wife screaming at me all the time is if I have this empathy for her and have to listen to her stuff. And like, yeah, sometimes I see women on the side when I travel and you're telling me I have to give that up too. And I'm like, well, I'm not telling you what to do, but yeah, that's kind of like empathy. Good. And interestingly, I've had some clients hear that, say, let me sleep on that. Come back the next week and say, nah. And they filed for divorce. 
and broke up with the lover, actually. I put that in my win column because I thought he heard this enough to say, well, I don't want to hurt these people, but I also do not want to listen to them anymore. And I don't want to deal with the nonsense. And if you're telling me that dealing with their nonsense is how you do a relationship right, I'm out. Win to me because now those relationships which weren't healthy were ended. I can't tell you how many Christmases, Thanksgivings, birthdays, late nights I've had encroached upon by emergency, emergency, it's an emergency. I remember a Christmas when the emergency, emergency, I said to my kids, put those presents on ice, I'll be right back. You know what the emergency was? A girlfriend wouldn't wear the new shoes that someone bought for them. I'm like, I'm out. No, no, no. And I'm seeing that in a tiny little sliver. Imagine what the people who are in relationships with them are going through. So the whole thing is meant to tell you that even if you're able to have this uncomfortable conversation about therapy, the kind of change that you may need for your relationship to move forward may not happen, number one. Number two, for therapy to make that kind of change could take years and years and years. Folks, we're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of therapy. There ain't no insurance company in the world that's going to pay for that much therapy, okay? The other thing to keep in mind is that the mistake that a lot of folks make in narcissistic relationships is that they attempt to be the narcissistic person's therapist. It's part of the trauma bonding cycle, that you want to be all things to people in toxic relationships. I'm going to be their friend. I'm going to be their sober coach. I'm going to be their therapist. I'm going to be the house cleaner. I'm going to be their sex partner. You can't do all of that as one person. And you certainly can't be their therapist. So that you're often listening and letting them offload so many of their problems on you, that at some point, if you sort of distance from that, that can actually help you. And if they keep talking about how much they're struggling with a specific problem, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that's happening. That might be your entry point. Say, you know what? It sounds like you have a lot going on. They feel validated. It could really be helpful to talk to someone who's a professional. You're such an important person and you do such important things. It really seems like getting the help you need could be useful. Give them their validation, fluff them up a little bit, and then you might be able to say, you need another important, educated person helping you. Is it a little manipulative? If it gets them in the door, it may be helpful. Even if a narcissistic person gets five, six, seven sessions, it can actually make a difference. But what you've got to do is make therapy palatable. A little bit of a Dr. Romney moment here. Because I practice in Los Angeles, having a therapist is a little bit like having a personal trainer. Like people talk about it in public here. Like who's your shrink? It's not like a taboo topic that like it could be in other places. But in L.A., that's a thing. That has actually been an asset for many of the narcissistic clients I have. They're like, ooh, I'm going to go see Dr. Narcissism. I bet I can break her. That's often been kind of their groove. And we've actually done some interesting work together because they didn't get under my skin, but it became a game. That's a very long way for saying, if you're going to suggest therapy to your sister, find that tiny little window of opportunity when she's talking about a specific problem. Tell her that her problem's really, really important, and it really deserves the attention of somebody who's got training to do this because she's an important person and needs that kind of support and you might be able to play on her grandiosity, just to nudge her in the door. In our next question here, Brianna asks, why are so few therapists trained in recognizing narcissism and narcissistic abuse? I've tried therapy with my narcissistic parents. It was horrible. Why isn't this more widely understood among therapists? 
Well, you know what, Brianna? I'm so glad you asked this question because it actually allows me to talk about my passion project where I'm actually developing a 30-hour training program for therapists to work with narcissistic abuse and am now lecturing all, actually all over the world for two therapists on how to learn about this. One thing I think everyone needs to understand is that we weren't taught this. Very rarely do graduate programs have an entire semester course on personality disorders, least of all an entire course on narcissism and antagonistic personalities. They just don't exist. I've talked to ballrooms full of 500 people, and I'll say, raise your hand if you had a full semester course on personality disorders, five hands maybe, and they tend to be younger people speaking to a switch. And then I've talked to graduate students who said, yeah, we had a course on personality disorders. We learned about the biology of personality disorders. I'm like, that's important. But did you learn how to work with them clinically? No. This phenomenon of narcissistic abuse is very, very new. And there's a few of us, you know, like myself, who've been working in this area for over a decade. And it's about that new, probably been around for about 20, 25 years. My entire graduate career, entire graduate career, not in my classrooms, my clinical training, my hospital training, the word narcissism didn't come up once. Not once. And it wasn't until one series of meetings with a really gifted supervisor who taught me a little bit about these dynamics, then the word did not come up again in my professional career until I was a professor at a university and then started my own program of research. So it is simply not talked about. And what that means then is there's this big knowledge gap that many, many clinicians out there are really trying to get the training in. So to clinicians listening, stay tuned. That training program's coming out soon. But in the interim, couple of thoughts. Try to find a therapist who's trauma-informed. At a minimum, trauma-informed therapists will account for your history of interpersonal trauma and interpersonal issues in your relationships. That can make a big difference. Second is if you find a therapist who's well-versed in domestic abuse, domestic violence, or intimate partner violence, those therapists will at least have some of the language of these kinds of manipulative relationships that have gaslighting and all of these other controlling dynamics present. But other than those kinds of things, if you can just find a therapist who can be present with you in the room, not doubt you, not put an agenda on you, you'll be fine. There's a lot of fantastic therapists out there, just empathic, really well-trained people who will get it. And as with anything, whether it's a dentist, medical doctor, or therapist, if you don't feel comfortable, it's okay to find someone else. Not every therapist is a good fit for everyone. Take your time and find someone you like. The therapist that you don't like, someone else loves. So everyone finds their place, but give yourself time and permission to do that. Next, Gina writes, my boyfriend and I have been in therapy together for three years. We've been focusing on his narcissism, but it seems like he's made no progress. I'm not expecting an overnight cure, but what are some realistic goals to have in couples therapy with a narcissist? Gina's question brings up two really interesting things to me. One thing that can happen, and, and I'm so glad Gina put the question like this, is that what we can see is that when a person goes into couples therapy with a narcissist, something that can happen is that the couples therapist will actually put a lot of their focus on the narcissistic person because they're the one engaging in more bad behavior. It's an interesting play by the therapist, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. 
Where it can work is that it's almost as though Gina's narcissistic boyfriend may not go to therapy on his own, but somehow he's showing up week after week with her. But she's saying, though, it doesn't feel like he's making much progress. And the struggle there is after three years, if no progress is being made, then this really probably is what we see with most narcissistic clients. There is not likely to be significant movement in therapy. I mean, I know she's not expecting an overnight cure, but three years is a long time. So the bigger question, though, Gina's asking is, what are the realistic goals to have? I'll tell you one thing that's not a realistic goal is that Gina's boyfriend is going to change significantly. That's just not on the table. But a lot of people, a lot of people go into couples or even family therapy with a narcissistic person. And I think the key to all therapy is that a person goes in there with realistic goals. So what needs to happen is that when you go into therapy, have very behavioral goals because those are more observable and they're more measurable. One of the biggest challenges in a narcissistic relationship is that we always make assumptions about the intention of the narcissist. Are you trying to hurt me? Actually, no, they're not. Believe it or not, no, they're not. They're just not noticing you. They're not trying to do anything. You know, you just want me to be sad. Mm, wrong again. They're not noticing you enough to care about that. So because a lot of folks in couples therapy with a narcissistic partner focus on the narcissistic person's intentions, you're going nowhere fast because we cannot change another person's intentions. We can't. The best we've got is a person's behavior, how a person shows up, whatever that looks like. And then you better figure out what's most important for you. Is it more participation in some household chores? Is it how they talk with your children? You know, is it the use of certain forms of language saying that I cannot have you use certain kinds of obscene language around the children? It has to be so clear. So the couples therapy then becomes a place of accountability so that there can be some of that backing and forthing. So that behavioral piece becomes really important. Another big goal that people want in couples therapy is accountability. So therapy can be a place where the narcissistic person actually learns how to give an apology. Narcissistic people don't know how to apologize. The most common way that narcissistic people apologize, they'll say, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not an apology. That is an embarrassment, a little bit of a gaslight, and it's definitely a manipulation, but it's not an apology. I'm sorry you feel that way. Mm, that's how I feel. So you're sorry for my mm -mm, gaslight. An apology is I'm sorry. A real apology takes responsibility. I'm sorry. I did something that hurt you. Empathy, responsibility, that practicing of how to issue an apology can actually be something you can work on in therapy because it is about how language is used. It's about the construction and the architecture of an apology. The other thing you want to hold out for as a goal in therapy is techniques that you can take out of the therapy and use, whether it's permission to step out of a difficult situation, some tool that the therapist gives you to kind of put the brakes on what's happening, things that you can use between sessions and then using the couple's therapy as a place to feel seen, heard, and recognized. The one thing you never want is to walk out of couple's therapy 
feeling more confused than when you walked in the door. My conversation will continue after this break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in this next question, it's sort of a general question that asks, how do the different types of narcissism show up in couples therapy? Such a good question. So I'm going to put on my teachy cap for a moment because I think this is a real opportunity for us to just have a review of the general types of narcissism, but then connect to how that could show up in the therapy room, all right? So let's start at the top. The most common, the classic, the narcissistic type we're all most familiar with, the grandiose narcissist, right? Arrogant, pretentious, larger than life, extroverted, aren't I great? Tell me more, tell me how great I am, let me pick up the check, yay, 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 okay, I wasn't flirting with her, that kind of narcissist, right? Grandiose narcissists, when they show up in therapy, let me tell you one thing they're almost always going to do, and that's to really show up with tons of charisma and try to charm the hell out of the therapist. So if you don't have a seasoned therapist in the room, it can be a little risky because a grandiose narcissist may come in the room and say, whoa, you went to UCLA? I'm a Bruin. Gosh, you must be so smart. I was told that's a really hard graduate program to get into. Wow, I'm so lucky we're in here. So you got to be real resistant to not fall for that. Meanwhile, especially if the partner sitting next to the grandiose narcissist looks shredded, tired, sad, a lot of people make the mistake of like, this person's so big and bright and shiny, kind of feel bad that they're with this partner who's so glum. Mm, Be careful with that. That glumness is probably years and years and years of putting up with narcissistic abuse. The grandiose narcissist may look great in therapy until the therapist calls them out and may say, "Mm, you know what, you keep talking over her. You keep interrupting him. He just shared his feelings and you're denying what do you, you get to be judge and jury and his emotions. When the therapist starts doing that, you can almost very quickly see a switch in the grandiose narcissist. They can become quite angry, petulant, sullen. And I can all but guarantee you the next session, they either won't show up or won't want to show up or they may not send the payment in time. So let's go then because this becomes a natural shift over to what a lot of folks call the covert narcissist. The kind of the official term is the vulnerable narcissist. So this covert vulnerable narcissist, how do they show up in therapy? Well, the covert vulnerable narcissist is chronically irritable, sullen, 
has lots of grievances, angry, feels that people are out to get them, really thin-skinned, can look sad, can also look really socially anxious. So one thing that happens from the jump is the therapist actually may wonder, is it this person's depression, anxiety? Is there something else happening with this person? And there tends to be almost more of a clinical focus on the covert or vulnerable narcissist. That covert narcissist, vulnerable narcissist, will also look like they're in such a bad state that they may seem like they're even more unhappy than you. Covert vulnerable narcissists will often give one-word answers. They'll sort of resent being asked to engage in this kind of level of emotional conversation, will feel chronically victimized. Nothing I do is enough. Nothing I've ever done is enough. Everyone is out to get me. No one has ever told me I've done right by them. I give and I give and it's never enough. Victim, victim, victim. And you're trying to go into a deeper communicative space and you've exhausted yourself doing that. You need a sharp, sharp, sharp therapist to pick up on those covert, vulnerable kinds of patterns. Because it's a form of narcissism that's not often talked about, it often gets missed. And so there's a real risk that the therapist will think, oh, there's an anxious, depressed partner with another partner who's also unhappy in the relationship, and that's what's being worked on, rather than those chronically sullen, resentful patterns. Now, when we get to the more severe issues, we get to malignant narcissism. Malignant narcissism is where we see patterns like coercive control, financial control, exploitation, isolation, using fear to menace someone. You know, you better watch out. You better make sure you don't talk badly about me because you know what? I know some I know cops like they're not going to believe you like that kind of thing, which can feel really unsettling. It is very unusual, very unusual for a malignant narcissist to show up in therapy with their partner. It may happen if, for example, the malignant narcissist is sort of being compelled to because by the courts, they're being compelled to as part of some other process. Maybe the church is compelling to, but some other force is saying you've got to go into couples therapy. But in general, they're not going to show up. And it can actually be unsettling for a therapist to work with a couple where there's a malignant narcissistic client. Domestic violence, like physical violence, may also be more likely, so there's dangerousness issues, and it wouldn't be unusual for the malignant narcissist to even have sort of a thinly veiled sense of threat that they're placing on the therapist as well. So when a therapist is scared, we simply can't do our work. We cannot work with clients we're afraid of. So in many ways, you almost need more of sort of a particular kind of seasoned therapist that isn't as sort of flustered by clients like this. The odds of a good outcome in this kind of therapy are pretty close to zero. This is not a client that's going to engage. The focus in that kind of therapy then is mostly the safety for the non-narcissistic partner. But then there's all those other forms of narcissism we don't talk about that much. It's where we get into communal narcissism. Communal narcissists seem like do-gooders to the world, rescuers, saviors. They try to save the world, everything from animals to elephants to neighbors to the community to the Little League team. They go to other corners of the world and look, I'm saving the world. And make no mistake, they're documenting all of it on Instagram, too. They aren't going to do this stuff quietly. The tricky bit with these communal narcissists is, at the face of it, they might even seem like a pillar of the community. But behind closed doors, as rageful, cruel, and manipulative as any narcissistic person. Initially, when they show up in therapy, it could very well be that their sort of communal zazazoo 
may win the therapist over. It's like, whoa, what a humanitarian. You're doing so much. Communal narcissists may also be in helping professions, therapists, teachers, doctors, pastors, those kinds of fields. So there's almost a built-in kind of, well, you must be cool. You're in a gentle job. I've done this long enough to know there ain't no such thing as a gentle job, that any kind of person with any kind of personality could occupy any kind of job. So just keeping that in mind that there's a risk that the communal narcissistic person, it's going to be harder for the therapist to see that pattern because they may be hearing about how much this person wants to save the world. There's also a risk with communal narcissists of some of sort of the new age positivity vibe where they're like, yeah, just, you know, sometimes my energy needs to be alone and just like, I got to be energizing and feeling the universe. And this other person's trying to raise kids and keep a household running while this other person's energizing. And so that kind of thing that a therapist needs to pick up and recognize that some of those sort of kind of woo-woo patterns don't work in a relationship. So a sharp-eyed therapist might say, mm, while you're energizing, are you aware that she was actually home with three sick children? You need someone who's willing to do that kind of calling out. But if the therapist doesn't know what communal narcissism is, it may take them a minute. Then we get to the self-righteous narcissist. Oh my, oh my. Now, Self-righteous narcissism is interesting because it's so rigid. There's an old-fashioned word for it called anencastic. That's just sort of your vocabulary word for the day. Nobody uses that word anymore. But it's really this almost, it has this obsessive flair, rigid, hyper-moralistic, judgmental, really weird about money. Even when they've got a ton of it, even if someone might need it, maybe if they're in a sort of a bind and they're just a medical situation, they'll hit back with... Well, I've always been very careful with my money. And you, you know, I know you talk about, oh, I was sick, but I was careful. You weren't. So I don't know if I feel comfortable. And I'm sure you could figure out a way to apply for that special kind of insurance. And you're thinking like, oh, my gosh, it's just like a thousand bucks and someone's health would be better. And they'll be like, no. Or it would be there's a dinner party and... You get stuck at work because you have a job where there's an emergency and you show up at 6.45 and they'll say, yeah, we already ate, but I made you a plate if you want to take it home. Like, what is happening? They can be very religiously abusive saying, well, a lot of the problems you're in is because you really were not devout enough. And it can feel so harsh, so invalidating. If you manage to get a self-righteous narcissistic person into therapy, and you might, you might. What you're going to see is the therapist might see this sort of really rigid order. I think it would be pretty manifest. We often view really organized, focused, workaholic people. Self-righteous people are often workaholics. They're often viewed very virtuously. They've been so responsible. They work so hard. They do what they're supposed to do instead of this sort of sense of, wow, this person is showing no empathy. So in the midst of all their rigid order and workaholism and moral righteousness, they're very invalidating. It's such a unique pattern that, again, it often doesn't get picked up. But if it does, when the therapist pushes on that self-righteous narcissist, they're very likely to drop off. And the last group I'm going to talk about, the superficial narcissist. I call these folks narcissist light. These are the folks who are your Instagram narcissists. They're like, wait, 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 make sure the light's good. We got to make sure we get a picture. I'm here. I'm like, what are you doing? You're at Disneyland and you're 48 years old. Like, really? 
And so, but got to get the light right. Make sure my ears look good. And like, meanwhile, there's children and they want to go on the rides. And so it's a very almost emotionally stunted, childlike, look at me. I want fun, fun times. Childlike. That's the only way I can describe it. It's actually kind of fun to have a few superficial narcissistic friends, kind of fun to have at a party. Certainly they're fun to go to Disneyland with because you're going to have a lot of pictures by the end of the day. But they are not made for long-term relationships, especially when there are responsibilities like financial responsibilities, children, caregiving, any of that. In those kinds of relationships, that's the one group where you may, may, may have a little bit of a fighting chance where with a good therapist, they may sort of say, okay, sweetie, the ears, the whole thing, this isn't working. Like you, you're going to, it's time. It's time to grow up, you know, cross the bridge away from Sleeping Beauty's castle and come back into the light because it's exhausting for people who say, gosh, we had so much fun when we were young. Of course you did. You know, they were so good at being youthful. But it often is sometimes about cleaning up the emotional hygiene. The superficial narcissists aren't mean people. They don't have that same kind of cruel, manipulative side. They're just so selfish and childlike and childish that they're still sort of conducting themselves like they're 25 years old. And while that might be absolutely adorable, and if they don't get into a relationship, it could actually work out great. But if you are in a relationship with them or have to rely on them, it can feel really impossible. But I actually think that group might have a little bit of a fighting chance in therapy. So as you can see, it's complex. Not all couples therapy with narcissistic folks is going to be the same because it's really going to depend not only on the type, but the severity of the person going in. If the therapist has a good pair of eyes on them, they may pick up the patterns. But I have to tell you, just a Dr. Romney moment here, there's many times when I've worked with a couple, and I'm like, okay, great, clear on your goals and this and that. But then there's that moment you're like, I'm dealing with a, a couple where there's a narcissist and you literally, I would feel sick in my stomach because then I'd know, like there's not much forward motion. And there's usually that moment and it's almost silent where at least one person in the couple will say, I think it's probably time to end therapy, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, time's up. So it's tough, but as you can see, it's very complicated. And I hope that makes clear to you why it is actually quite difficult for therapists who do, especially who do couples work, how complicated the narcissism stuff is, which is why it's important. Not every therapist is good with every type of narcissist, but if you look, you'll find that therapist who may actually work really well with your kind of narcissistic couple match. In my next question, Charles writes, how do I prepare for a therapy session with my narcissistic wife? How do I make sure I get my point across without her taking the lead in the conversation and ending up totally off topic? Fantastic question, Charles. And I think actually what Charles is asking would apply to any kind of therapy you would go into, not just couples, but family therapy, anything with someone narcissistic, heck, even your own therapy. But in couples therapy, it's tricky. A lot of people will say one of the hardest things about their narcissistic relationship is once an argument starts, the narcissistic person always overpowers and overwhelms them. Narcissistic people are much better at arguing than ordinary people because they don't have that much empathy. They really can kind of go in for the jugular. I mean, nothing against lawyers, but they argue like lawyers. And the problem with lawyers is lawyers are great in court. But that sort of like dispassionate, like emotionless argument doesn't work in a human relationship. And narcissistic people really have that capacity, which can hurt because you feel hurt and yet they're trying to argue logic. Because their logic can often feel right on point, your emotions, which have now been gaslighted, can feel almost impossible to state. 
So one of the best things you can do is take some notes ahead of time and bring those notes in. In fact, I have coached many clients on how to prepare for going into couples therapy with a narcissistic partner. It's a big moment. They're finally getting their partner into therapy. But they're like, I don't want to screw up this opportunity. So we make notes. And I have to tell you, when I used to work with couples, if somebody comes in and reads something they've prepared, that's a bit of a sign to me. Like, this person felt the need to prepare this so carefully. I'm wondering if they're chronically overwhelmed by the partner and can't get their words out. There's different kinds of tricks couples therapists use. One is the sort of the five-minute game they play. There's a timer set. One person gets to talk uninterrupted for five minutes. Timer goes off. Next person gets to go for five minutes. Can't be interrupted. As you can imagine, the narcissistic people do a lot of face talking. So that can happen. It can be really gaslighty and sort of destabilizing for the person who is trying to make their point. It's the therapist's job in those situations to rein in that person and say, no, no, no. If you have to look out that window, you look out that window, but keep your faces to yourself. If someone's being interrupted, the couple's therapist will weigh in and stop it. They'll make sure that people get to make their points fully. That's what's supposed to happen. But because narcissistic relationships are so confusing and so overwhelming, it is crucial that you make notes ahead of time. In an ideal world, you're in individual therapy and you work with your individual therapist on it and you make very clear notes. What are my goals? What are the things I want to bring in? What are the scenarios and situations I want to bring in? Having that will help you really keep yourself very, very organized. Now, if you find that it's constantly going off topic and the therapist isn't reining it back in, maybe this therapist may not be a good fit for you. So you might want to give that a chance. And then if you feel like it keeps going away, no matter how organized I am, that's definitely something that you want to keep in mind. A little bit of a warning before you go into couples therapy. Just a reminder, I highly, highly recommend that you do not use the word narcissist, psychopath, gaslight, sociopath. Don't use those words. Stick to words that identify behavioral patterns. I do not feel seen or heard in this relationship. When I talk to this person, they're not listening and I can tell by the nature of their answers. We do not spend time alone together, always has to involve a large group. And when I do try to suggest it, I am mocked and laughed at. Those are patterns. And that's what a therapist can work with. There are some therapists out there that actually kind of get a little prickly if you use words like narcissist or gaslight or psychopath. They don't even want to hear the words. And it can start the therapy off on bumpy ground. But if you use patterned language then that is something that can be talked about without you being sort of labeled the problem child in the therapy. That's just sort of a hack you want to remember because a lot of folks will come in and say, oh my gosh, she's so narcissistic. And that sadly, for therapists who may not fully understand this, might make you seem like the one who's antagonistic. I'm not saying it's fair, but I think it's a way to get in there. The best moment the best moment is if you go in there, you've made your patterns clear, the therapist is clearly seeing what's going on. Somehow you come to find out that the therapist is onto it. That's an incredibly, incredibly validating moment. And once you sense that the therapist is getting it and is starting to sort of call out the narcissistic person, 
a lot of people will say that that was an incredibly curative moment for them. So in my next question, Bianca says, my husband is very charismatic. He makes everyone feel like the most important person in the room. And that's how I fell for him. This seems to extend to our couples therapist as well. It almost seems like he is love bombing the therapist and the therapist seems to be eating it up. I can see from the therapist's perspective, my husband just seems like the greatest guy in the world while I am a stressed out and complaining mess. What I thought would be our last chance to make the marriage work now feels like a hopeless dynamic. Have you seen this before? Have I seen this before? First of all, I might be the only person in the world who thinks charismatic is a bad word. Like people say, I know someone and they're charismatic. I'm like, no, no, I can't meet them. Like it's like the ogre word to me. So charismatic is tricky. I love what Bianca said here. It's so good. Says that he's love bombing the therapist. Kind of, sort of, yeah. When they come in and admire, again, their credentials and how smart they are and you know so much and we're so lucky to see you and I know how popular you are as a therapist. However it is, they're love bombing them. Therapists are human beings too. Again, this is why I keep using the word seasoned. There's no winning me over anymore. Like I think I've just been around the block way too many times and have too many miles on my tires that if someone tries to cariz their way into my office, I'm like, yeah, no. But that's, that, again, back at the beginning of my career, if someone told me I was smart, I think I would have fallen for it. But the picture Bianca is painting here of one partner looking stressed out and complaining and the other one looking really well put together, this is why we need more training for therapists so they know what they're seeing. Because it is so easy to say, like, why is this great, charming person with this person who just seems like sort of hollowed out? It's unkind. It's almost like, how is this really psychologically attractive person with this sort of psychologically not so attractive person? And it's not that at all. It is that if you understand the dynamics that when we see charismatic people, a tiny little alarm should be going off in our head. And if we see a charismatic person next to a person that really looks super stressed out, that alarm better get louder. So have I seen this before? Absolutely. And I think I want people to know that this dynamic isn't unusual. Ultimately, anybody can put on a show, right? They can come in and sort of be performative in therapy. The therapist's job is to get past all that performative stuff into what's really going on. And so the challenge, though, is that what Bianca is saying is that my therapist is falling for it. And the other thing that concerns me about what Bianca says is I thought therapy would be our last chance to make this marriage work. That's too much pressure for therapy. That at that point, if this feels like therapy is life support, the odds of it pulling it out. I've never seen a wrecked, destroyed relationship be pulled back from the rocks. What I've seen is boats that are going off a little off course that therapy gets them back on course. But once that boat has crashed onto the rocks because they turned into the wrong harbor, that's it. It's a salvage job at that point. And you're really trying to help like these two people maybe sort of dismantle this relationship. So Bianca got into this at a point where the relationship feels like it was already pushed to a limit. And the love bombing dynamic may have also weakened what was happening in that therapy. And then now it feels sort of hopeless. And it could very well be that this dynamic could mean that a different therapist could actually work better and maybe getting a referral like that to someone new. 
If they're seeing a therapist of a particular gender or age or race or anything, it can mean, say, let's switch this up. Maybe that dynamic will change it. Like find someone who isn't going to get played. Unfortunately, in reviews of therapists, that's not one of the things. You know how they'll have like depression, anxiety, substance use won't be played. That's not one of the bullets. But unfortunately, there are some therapists who can really see it and get it. And there's some who actually don't. And in this particular case, I actually do worry for Bianca because this particular dynamic that's happening therapy in her specific case may leave her feeling kind of gaslighted. In a case like this, one thing that would be really important is that Bianca be in her own therapy because her own therapist might be able to give her the guidance she needs to make decisions not only about her relationship, but how also to make some decisions about whether to proceed in this particular couple's therapy, seek someone else out, or other kinds of strategies for how she can emotionally approach this. We will be right back with this conversation. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one thing people might wonder, like, well, if I'm already paying for a couples therapist, do I need to be in my own therapy? Always, always being respectful and aware of privilege and how expensive therapy can be and insurance doesn't cover it. I'm very aware of that as I give this answer. In an ideal world, if people are in couples therapy, they should be in individual therapy. Couples therapy is not a substitute for individual therapy. What's happening in there is a very, very different process. Your couples therapist wants you to be healthy, but that process of individuation and of healing and of building autonomy, that's not what's happening in the couples therapy room. That's what's happening in the individual therapy room. The individual therapy room is your safe space to say whatever you want, things you absolutely cannot share appropriately in a couple's therapy room. So in an ideal world, you've got both, but always keeping in mind, though, I recognize that the financial burdens of that much therapy happening really means that this is a strategy that's available to only a very privileged few. Something that people do often wonder is like, oh, if I really like my couples therapist, can I also see them on the side as an individual therapist? No, no, no. Your couples therapist is your couples therapist. Now you may wonder, well, what if my partner drops out of couples therapy? Like, I don't want any part of this. I'm done. Can I see that person as an individual therapist? Yes, you can. And many people will sort of go into that place. Different couples therapists might have different philosophies. Some couples therapists work only with couples, by the way. There are some people out there who won't see you unless you're a two. It's a philosophical thing. I mean, it's not how I'd operate, but that's how they believe. So if you're not a two, no therapy for you. But with many therapists, if you're in as a couple, 
the relationship ends or your partner says, I don't, I'm not doing therapy. I don't like this therapist anymore, but you really have an affinity for this therapist. There's actually kind of a built-in advantage to that because this therapist knows your history in this relationship and they often have that to draw upon and they also have sort of a reference for who your partner is. If I had a therapist fantasy camp, I'd go out to a restaurant with my client and their partner. That would be so interesting for me to watch how they handle that or even better, actually real therapist fantasy camp that I'd be in a restaurant where there was a microphone on their table. I could hear what they're saying, but they didn't know I was watching them, which seems very surveillance-y, and I know that. But if I was at the table, it would change them. But if there was a way I could really watch them when they were out and about and not just the recollection of one person, that would give us tremendous insight. Unfortunately, that is not how the world – well, fortunately, that's not how the world works. But it is not unusual for a person to say, I really liked our couple's therapist, and that person went on to be my individual therapist. It's how a lot of people have found therapists that they really love. Pugma says, my narcissistic colleague is always talking about how much therapy he's doing and how he's killing it. How is it possible he's in therapy, but it seems like he's more narcissistic than ever before? He makes all of our work lives miserable. Ah, yes. The bragging narcissist in therapy question. It's an interesting dynamic. In this particular case, Padma's talking about someone she works with, but it could be happening in your family. It could be your brother saying, hey, everyone, I'm in therapy. Guess who's the only mentally healthy person in this family? You know, it, you're like, what is happening? Because they're just as bad as ever. Remember, therapy only moves the needle a tiny bit with narcissistic clients. And so because of that, people really think, okay, my colleagues in therapy, that's great, but it's as bad as ever. Here's a little bit of an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. Therapy can sometimes make narcissism worse. What? Yes. And how does that happen? If the therapist doesn't understand narcissism and just keeps hyper-validating them, like, oh, I love your confidence. Like, you can do anything and you can be anything. This can also happen if they're in coaching. They may actually be magnifying the monster. And so this person's saying, well, I hope you know, but my therapist feels like all of you are limiting me. And my therapist said this, and my therapist said that, and my therapist said this. The narcissistic person triangulates the therapist into all their conversations saying, I hope you all know you're not good for me and you're limiting me because that's what my therapist said. We don't even know if this is what the therapist is saying. But that is not uncommon for narcissistic people to sort of play that game. And if the therapist doesn't understand narcissism, they may actually be inflaming, emboldening, and enabling this dynamic. It's really, really, really difficult because I know when I've worked with narcissistic clients, it's always been walking on this razor's edge of wanting to form a secure attachment with them but also not spoiling them because that's really where how you create a narcissistic adult. In childhood, these are kids who are often really spoiled, but they're anxiously attached. They don't have a consistent, available caregiver, but when they do, the caregiver spoils them. And that right there is sort of one of the ways you can create a narcissist. So as a therapist, I have to be a safe, consistent place that still holds them to accountability but also supports them. So I have to have that sort of therapeutic love for them, even when they're angering me, but also tell them that they're angering me. Not easy. When it works, it's, it works great. If you don't do it right, you're actually sort of 
basically giving the tantruming child all the cookies it wants. It's not easy. So when you have this colleague who's saying, I'm killing it at therapy and things are as bad as ever, things were going to be bad either way, whether this colleague was in therapy or not. So all of the usual rules for working with a narcissistic colleague, making sure you document, being in your own therapy, ensuring that you build relationships, allyships at work, making sure you have mentors and colleagues, even in different companies that you can turn to for guidance, having good supports outside of the workplace. All of that is going to matter because your narcissistic colleague is just going to be narcissistic. And if it's a family member where you thought, this is our hope, they're in therapy, and it actually feels like it's worse, this can affect you. It can take the narcissistic abuse you're experiencing, and you can feel even more helplessness or hopelessness. But if I can give you only one piece of guidance, the thing you may not ever want to do is roll up to that person and say, well, you feel worse now, so I don't think your therapist is doing a good job. Don't do it. It's just not worth it. So unfortunately, in their therapy, it may very well be that they're getting too much of one thing and not enough of another. And also, you know what, folks? They may not be telling the truth. You'll never know if they're actually going to therapy. They may say that they are because they might be posturing. You just don't know. All you know is that you're working with someone difficult. So to Padma, I would say all the usual rules about working with a narcissistic colleague. In this next question, Orly sent us her story. When I went to marriage counseling with my ex-husband, it seemed like the therapist was rooting for us to succeed no matter what was going on in our relationship. During one session, she saw my ex absolutely blow up on me and then storm out. I sat there sobbing and said, this is what I'm dealing with and no one sees it. I was facing a health issue during this time and the best suggestion my therapist had for me was to tell me to call my mother for help instead of addressing the larger issue that my husband wouldn't help me. At the next session, it was like nothing ever happened. She was right back to normal, trying to have us both work on communication. I was doing the work, but I was also dealing with verbal, emotional, and financial abuse. She never addressed any of it. I don't know what to do. I feel like our therapist didn't recognize abuse that happened right in front of her. How did she not address this? So this is a really, really tough one. The vast majority of therapists would call someone out who was screaming at someone in a room. But unfortunately, not all do. And there have been therapists out there who will say, well, they're having their process. Or maybe you're triggering them. All I can say is I philosophically do not agree with that. When somebody is screaming at someone and verbally abusing them, to me, that qualifies as verbal violence, and it's not okay. And the fact that that was happening in a therapy room is a signifier that this is happening far worse in the privacy of their home. Orly, on top of that, has health issues, which when I read this question, I'm thinking, it's no wonder you have health issues. A lot of folks who go through long-term narcissistic abuse do develop a whole host of health issues, some from just not giving themselves adequate self-care, not exercising, having disrupted sleep. I'm surprised by the number of survivors of narcissistic abuse who live with autoimmune conditions like lupus, fibromyalgia, or rheumatoid arthritis. That level of chronic stress over such a protracted time really does feel like it could be a contributor to those kinds of stress-related illnesses. Here she's facing a health issue. And in a way, what the therapist was almost trying to do was let the husband off the hook. 
In a sick, twisted way, it could very well have been that the therapist knew the husband wouldn't help her, so call your mom so at least you'll have help. But the bigger issue for the couple's therapist to address is why is it that this man wouldn't step up to take some responsibility in the care of his wife who is struggling with a medical illness? The sort of red flags, the therapeutic red flags that are unfolding here is that somebody was screaming in therapy and it wasn't being addressed. Like I said, I do not agree with that. Nobody needs to speak their truth by screaming it. They can speak it. They cannot yell it. When that's not being called out and someone is storming out of therapy and that is not addressed, I have to say that's probably a sign that this may not be a safe therapeutic space for you. I'll always say this therapist may very well work for somebody else. But in your situation, if your screaming is happening and nothing is being done, and I'm telling you folks, I've heard this happen over and over again. The number of people, the number of clients over the years who've said to me, I went to couples therapy, my partner screamed at me in therapy, and the couples therapist said, this is his process. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. And so a lot of our therapeutic work was actually sort of undoing the sort of sense of threat that came from just being in couples therapy. So when that happens, to give yourself permission to say, this is not a safe space for me, I can find someone else. There's also a bit of gaslighting that happened here for this person. They came back into therapy and no one ever mentioned that this person screamed in therapy and stormed out of the room. When something happens like that, even not in therapy, even in your regular life, where there's, I don't know, someone upends the table at a birthday party or screams or yells or just something like that. And then the next week you all get together and no one speaks of that is actually a form of gaslighting because this really, really messed up, perhaps even traumatizing thing, very, very sort of activating thing, upsetting thing happens and nobody notices it. You're thinking, am I? Oh, I the only person who saw that? You doubt yourself. And when everyone's just sort of eating dinner like normal, you're like, there's got to be something wrong with me. So even silence can bring out that kind of gaslighting, not mentioning it. Who knows what the therapist's motivation was for not mentioning it? But there's a danger when couples therapy gets solely focused on communication. Unfortunately, therapy can sometimes be dogmatic, like there's one right way. Communication is the path forward. Human beings aren't lab rats. We're a lot more complex than that. We're made up of stories, experiences, trauma. We bring many different experiences generationally through our cultures. So it's not as simple as communication is everything. Mm, Not so simple. But sadly, that many times people can get stuck in that way of thinking. What Orly says is, I don't know what to do. I feel like our therapist didn't recognize abuse that happened right in front of her. The therapist didn't recognize abuse that happened right in front of her. How did she not address this? That how is something we may not ever answer. I think it's dangerous if I speculate here why the therapist didn't address it. It could have been the therapist herself might have been scared in that situation. The therapist may have a a very clear philosophical point of view. The therapist might have been fine with him yelling. We don't know. So it's impossible to address that. It's also not unusual for people in these situations to resent the therapist and feel like that's not okay. I, how can I? I'm a terrible person. I'm resenting someone who's helping me. There are no unacceptable feelings. I'm going to say that one more time. There are no 
unacceptable feelings. You feel what you feel. You have your feeling. You be with your feeling and it works its way through. One of the worst things we do to ourselves is we judge and we shame our emotional experiences. And that is magnified for people who are going through narcissistic abuse. Be with your feeling. You resent your therapist? That's okay. What you do with that, that's up to you. Some people may choose to share it. Some people may not. Some people may ask for a referral. Some people may simply stop going to therapy. This is why it is important to have one good supportive therapeutic space in your life. Again, ideally, if you can, your own therapy to share those feelings. I work on Zoom. They'll say, can I turn off my camera? To me, I feel like whatever the client asks for in that space is okay. They'll turn it off and they'll tell me what they feel. When they turn the camera back on, we got to break that one down. But there's so much shame. And where do we start? There's no unacceptable feelings. You resent your therapist. That's okay. And sometimes processing that may not only release someone who left you feeling unsafe in that room, but perhaps some of the anger you had over other unsafe relationships that you've had throughout your life. Not every therapist is good for every client. We are not made for everyone. It is important that you find therapeutic spaces that feel safe and okay for you. Why therapists do what they do, like I said, it's dangerous to speculate on. But what you need to remember is if it doesn't feel good, you can make that choice for yourself to find a space, whether that's your own individual therapy or a future couple's referral that feels better. When we love someone, and we love the narcissistic people who are in our life. That's what makes it complicated. Obviously, we just have the hope that can't I make this better? And therapy feels like it could be that space. Therapy with a narcissistic person, even at the individual level for us as therapists, is complicated. But it's very complicated if you go in with them. Every so often, yep, there's a unicorn and people say, we actually made something of this. Or at a minimum, I felt like I had a safe space with a referee in the room where I could let my pain be known. However, the narcissistic person registered it. I don't know, but I felt safer having that person in there. Other people might say we tried. The therapist tried to push the conversation. It didn't work. They dropped off, and I ended up with a good therapist. But above all else, what you have to remember is that when you go into therapy with whomever the narcissistic person is in your life, give yourself permission to say, does this feel okay? Remember, not every therapist is perfect for every client. Not every therapist can work well with every couple or family or whatever. To give yourself that choice to choose a therapeutic situation that feels good for you. And if it doesn't feel good for you, one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself is to say, I deserve to feel safe and not do it. But it's a complicated conversation. And I know a lot of people wonder what happens in that therapy room with a narcissistic client. Listen, I've worked with a lot of narcissistic clients, and I've seen things in there that were profound, sublime, hilarious, heartbreaking, terrifying, and sometimes even optimistic. It's a complicated space. I've been really privileged to work with clients who are both narcissistic and who have gone through narcissistic abuse. I've learned from both, and above all else, I've learned that therapy is science, it's magic, it's mysticism, it's empathy, it's compassion. And for anyone going in, it can feel like a big risk for any of you who are in therapy. Good for you. It's not an easy journey to go on to ever be vulnerable with another human being.
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.